0: My name is Ed Yorston, I'm one of the ministers here at Church by the Bridge and uh, we're really really delighted that you've come and joined us here tonight. If this is the first time that you've been to Church by the Bridge or if indeed this is the first time you've stepped foot in a church, a very very warm welcome to you and uh, we are delighted that you've joined us. Let me tell you just a little, a little thing about this church, um, Church by the Bridge is a Bible believing church. That is, we believe that in this book, in these words, God addresses us. He addresses humanity and the deepest needs, longings and desires of the human heart. We believe that in this book, uh, God has spoken to us about the historical man, Jesus Christ. And this church is about him. Uh, But we live in a modern world and we believe in the wonders of science and all that it has done and taught us and all that we've benefited from it. And we want to let those wonderful findings help us think how we can read this book better and how we can see and understand what it is that God has taught us about life. And so we thought, what better way to contribute to National Science Week than to host a forum, a discussion about the place of faith in this modern age of science. And so that's what we're doing here tonight. But I'm certainly not the expert, and I'd love to introduce you to someone who has done a lot more thinking than I. Uh, our guest speaker tonight is Dr. David Wally. Uh, I'll invite Dr. Uh, David up. Uh, David is a man who, has, uh, uh, who works professionally uh, as a cardiologist at Royal North Shore and Sydney Adventist hospitals. Uh, David has a particular interest. Uh, in, um, in arrhythmias, um, and particularly at the microscopic level, I've, I've got here, hold, hold on to your hats guys, because I have here a copy of David's PhD, and uh, and here is the title, you ready? Intracellular pH and sodium regulation in heart cells exposed to anisosmolar solutions. I didn't even know I had an anisosmolar, but uh, thank you very much, as you can see David is interested in the finer details of biology and uh, and as he's pursued this um, it has led him to think about the intersection the junction between faith and science. Now as a, as a younger man uh, David in his 20s went on an exploration about the existence of God and it was only when he became convinced that there was a God that he began entertaining thoughts about the historical man Jesus Christ and as he did that uh, he has realized how do I balance these two passions and interests of mine? The thing that I love about Dr. David Wally is that he's not a man who's written any of the books. He doesn't have one special narrow focus on any of these areas. But he's literally read every book out there. I went to his home and uh, there's this giant bookshelf filled with every book that you could think from both sides of the argument. And so I think we're going to be really treated tonight to a helpful understanding of both sides of the discussion. Uh, and, uh, and I'm really appreciative of the 15 years that David has been pursuing this passion and that what we might benefit from that. So let's please give a warm round of applause for Dr David Wally.
1: Thank you.
0: <clears throat> and David, before you, you begin, I just want to ask you two questions. Uh, firstly, what do you hope everyone and If there is more people, we we can get some seating down here, Um, so please keep coming in. Uh, If if there's one thing that you want each of us who've ventured out here on a Wednesday night um, to come away with, uh, what is it that you hope to achieve tonight?
1: Look, I am expecting that in a room this size there'll be a mixture of people from different positions on the, the God and science question. There'll be people who are believers in God. Uh, who may be wondering where science, how to reconcile the findings of science, particularly evolution, with their faith. There'll be people who are exploring perhaps the question of God. And if you're here not yet convinced, but keen to to see how science interacts with uh, the possibility of God's existence, I'm glad you're here. And there will be people here, I'm sure, who are convinced that there is no God. And so I hope that everyone at least goes away tonight with maybe one new pearl of slight wisdom, um, a bit of a challenge, and uh, hopefully still thinks physics is fun. And David, as you've you've pursued this interest
0: with real passion for, for well over 15 years, what's been the hardest thing for you as you've thought about this junction between faith and science? I think,
1: I think the hardest thing is just covering the so many different disciplines that are involved in trying to grapple with this topic. I mean, the scientific disciplines of, you know, physics, chemistry, biology, then there's philosophy, then there's theology, which I'm not an expert in. Uh, but the important thing, I think, is you've got to read both sides. You can't just come to any discussion like this and just have your own biased... uh uh, presented you've got to read the people who are writing opinions that are not the same as yours so that you can put a balance there and hopefully i can present a a fairly balanced picture tonight well
0: we are so appreciative for the hard work that you've done we're looking forward to benefiting from that tonight let me just quickly tell you while david sets up here uh, just a brief idea of what's happening tonight so david's going to present in two installments Uh, We're going to have in the middle a bit of a supper break, an opportunity to grab a cup of tea, have a bite to eat, uh, and if you need to use the bathrooms, we have bathrooms out here on your right. Uh, So that's going to happen for about 15 minutes in the middle, then we'll return and David will present once more, and then we'll have an opportunity for question time, so a &A. Q&A. If you would like to write any questions down, hopefully you will have received one of these on your way in. Um, There's just some paper to jot down, everyone's got a phone. Write a question down as we go along. And uh, hopefully we can address some of those questions
1: as we come to the end of our night. But I'll hand over to you, David. Thanks, Ed. So, welcome everyone. And what I'd like to do tonight is to to explore the interface between belief in God and belief in science and the scientific method. And I want to ask the question, uh, the most fundamental question we can ask, how can science help us, or can science help us, to discover whether, in fact, there is a God behind the universe? The question's especially relevant this week because we're in Science Week and as you may have heard, uh, there are a number of prominent scientists like Lawrence Krauss, uh, Richard Dawkins and Stephen Hawking who would triumphantly announce that God is dead, uh, that science has all the answers. Uh, But I don't think that's so and I want to present some reasons why. Um, Whatever your position on the God question, I hope tonight you'll uh, go away a little bit more challenged, and, and at least give it some more thought. What I'm not going to do is try and convince you that I can prove God's existence from science, like a lot of those crazy YouTube videos you might have hooked onto that say the one message and the one argument atheists have never thought of, and here I'm presenting it on YouTube. If that answer was so easy, it would have been thought of and presented many years ago. So what I'm going to look at is uh, the question of evidence, and what I want to try and establish that is that science and belief in God can coexist quite peacefully and rather than running away from science, we should look at science and what it can tell us about the awe and wonder of God. So let's see where we're going to go tonight. So the first thing I'm going to do is discuss what are the scopes and limits of science, what can we reasonably expect science to bring to the table on this question We'll then spend a little time on the very important concept of mechanism and agency. Then we'll look at a little bit of evidence from cosmology, the Big Bang and fine-tuning of the universe. I want to say a few words about beauty and maths and how that may be appointed to the truth. We'll have a break then and then the second half we'll discuss the real elephant in the room which is the main issue that's been most emblematic of the conflict or perceived conflict between Uh, religion, belief in God and science and that's the issue of evolution. And then there'll be a question time, an open mic section at the end which is always the scariest part but I really do like it. So write down your questions and we'll try and answer as many as possible. So what's the current status of belief in God amongst scientists? Well most of the data comes from the United States where this Pew survey done in 2009 showed that about 50% of scientists still believed in God or a higher power. And this was from a sample of over 2,500 scientists from established academic institutions. A recent survey from 2015 by uh, Elaine Eklund from Rice University sampled scientists across eight countries, 9,000 scientists, a very big survey, and came up with a range of scientific Uh, scientists believe in God, varying from 33% in France, which was the lowest country sampled, through to about 66% in Turkey and India. And on average, it was about 50%. My own profession, uh, the medical profession, seems to have a higher rate of belief in God, about 76% in this survey and study published in 2005. So at least, what can we say? That science is still compatible at least with half of the scientists surveyed with belief in God. And we can see that that's the case when we look at an example of two very brilliant and eminent scientists. On the left, Sir John Polkinghorne, who is the ex-mathematical physicist uh, from Cambridge University. He was the co-discoverer of the quark, the most basic subatomic unit that makes up protons and neutrons. And at the age of 49, he decided that all he'd done in science... Had been achieved, and he left to become an Anglican minister. And he spent the last uh, 40 years or so writing books on the interface between God and science, his most famous one being Chaos, Quarks, and Christianity. It's a real page turner. <laughs> on the right is Stephen Hawking, and Stephen is the, is the Emeritus Professor of uh, uh, Chair of Mathematical Physics at Cambridge. These men shared corridors together and he's done amazing work on the area of black holes singularities and Hawking is an atheist. So these two men hold diametrically opposed views on the existence of God but both are brilliant scientists. Hawking's most famous book is A Brief History of Time which shares the, uh, the record for being the least read <coughs> bestseller in the world. Uh, 1988 to 1990 it was on the sh- most coffee uh, tables Uh, but people who read it found it totally uh, incomprehensible, at least if you weren't a a quantum physicist. So what questions can we expect science to be able to answer for us? Well, it's very good at answering the how questions, questions of mechanism, by what means do things come about, how does the natural world work, but beyond the reach of science are questions that venture into the world of metaphysics, questions of value, purpose morality, personal experience. Questions that religion seeks to answer are the why questions, the metaphysical questions. Why is there something rather than nothing? Why am I here? Is there a meaning to life? What happens when I die? Why is the universe comprehensible at all? And that was a question that vexed the great Albert Einstein who said the only incomprehensible thing about the universe is that it's comprehensible. Einstein, as we'll see later, did like to venture into metaphysics. And everybody wants to know what the great man, the great greatest genius of physics, uh, thought about God. And he was asked over and over what his beliefs were. Of course, he was, a, he was Jewish by birth. But he never engaged in the uh, idea of a personal or interactive God. He believed rather in, as he says here, everyone who is engaged in science becomes convinced that the laws of nature manifest the existence of a spirit vastly superior to that of men, and one in whom the face of which we, with our modest powers, must feel humble. So he had a real humility and awe of a greater intelligence and power, but he didn't see it... Uh, that power as an interventional relational God but he did say the more I study physics the more I'm drawn to metaphysics and that certainly became the case later in his life. So far from being at war with science and uh, faith in a creator God has actually been a, a, a quite a critical driver of science It's widely accepted by historians of science that the great explosion of knowledge in geology, astronomy, chemistry and physics from the 16th to the 19th centuries was driven by uh, the wide acceptance that there was a God behind the universe. Alfred North Whitehead puts it nicely when he says, men became scientific because they expected law in nature and they expected law in nature because they believed in a lawgiver. This was the great era of Boyle, Newton, Maxwell, Faraday, Pascal, Galileo, all men who firmly believed that there was a God behind the science that they were studying. So I don't think the battle, if there is a battle, is between science itself and the pursuit of the scientific method and God. It's rather a battle between worldviews, the worldview that says there is a God, there is something beyond the physical space-time that we live in, and the view of scientific reductionism. Scientific reductionism is a big word, but I think C.S. Lewis summed it up nicely when he called it the nothing-butteries. The nothing-butteries. And basically what the nothing-butteries are is the idea that we are nothing but the sum of our parts, nothing but a bunch of mindless atoms co-locating, or as Richard Dawkins says, nothing but vehicles to propagate our selfish genes, the nothing-butteries. And J.S. Haldane, a physiologist and philosopher, realises the actual self-destructive nature of this reductionist approach when he says, think about this, if the thoughts of my mind are nothing but the motions of atoms in my brain and it's a mechanism that's arisen by mindless, unguided processes, why then should I actually believe anything it tells me, including the fact that it's made of atoms? it 's a sort of circuitous argument, uh, reductio ad absurdum. and Charles Darwin mentioned the same doubts in his uh, book on the, uh, on, uh, on the species on the origin of species. This man uh, was a tortured soul, Erwin Schrodinger, who was a very famous quantum physicist, but he realized the limits of what science where science could take him he said he 's very astonished that the scientific picture Of the real world is very deficient. It gives a lot of factual information, but it's ghastly silent about all and sundry that's really near to our heart. It knows nothing of beauty and ugly, good or bad, God and eternity. So what he's saying there and what he's asking is, is science the only source of truth? Can only science deliver the truth? Well we know that's not the case. If we think about many areas of our lives we don't turn to science in areas of philosophy, art, music, literature. We don't ask science whether my wife loves me or whether she sings beautifully or that poem is exquisite. There are lots of questions that are not subjectable to the scientific method but are still important ones. Not all scientific questions are important as exemplified by my thesis there which answered (laughs) nothing that's really changed the lives of anyone in our planet. So not all scientific questions are important but equally many important questions are not scientific. So there are layers of explanation and layers of meaning and layers of exploration in our world. And uh, John Polkinghorne uses a nice example of that when he says, ask, you ask me why the kettle is boiling. And I can tell you the kettle is boiling because the, the heat from that gas stove is imparting kinetic energy to the molecules in the water and heating them up and at 100 degrees Celsius they undergo a phase transition from liquid to gas. And that's a very good physical explanation, but an equally valid explanation is that the water is boiling because I happen to want a cup of tea. So providing a mechanistic explanation for a phenomena in the physical world doesn't rule out other layers of meaning and purpose. And this idea brings us to the concept of mechanism and agency, which we'll come back to a little bit later in the talk. Oxford mathematician uh, John Lennox uses the analogy of Aunt Matilda's cake. So Aunt Matilda makes a cake. It's put in a room and the physicists and uh, chemists and nutritionists uh, and food technologists are invited in to deconstruct the cake. They take it apart, they examine its caloric value, its carbon bonds, work out the sugars and the flour and the water and they deconstruct it completely. So they know everything about what that cake's made of, but they actually can't answer the critical questions which are, who was it made by and why was it made? So the idea here is that simply because we understand some of the mechanisms of the universe by science without bringing in God, it doesn't mean we can logically conclude that there is no God or agency who designed and created the laws and the mechanisms that we're studying. So Paul Davies uh, has written widely in the interface between science and God. He is an astrophysicist uh, at Arizona State University. He's also one of the explorers in the SETI program, the Search for Extraterrestrial extraterrestrial Intelligence. And Davies uh, says that, in his opinion, uh, science offers a surer path to religion, to God, than religion. Now, I don't exactly... I believe that's the case. I don't think we can prove God from science, but I think there certainly are evidences and I think we're going to have a look now where some of the evidence leads. This is a vast topic and so I've got to cherry pick out and try and select for you some of the areas that I think have been most influential in my thinking. But there's a vast array and if you want to come over and borrow some books, you're welcome. So let's look at cosmology. But before we go there, let's just look at this picture which is not Photoshop, this is one of the thousand photos from the Hubble Space Telescope, uh, which has been sending back for the last 25 years. This is the Sombrero Galaxy, and this is my vote for the most beautiful uh, picture from Hubble. It's a, a galaxy uh, that holds a thousand, uh, 100 billion stars, which is about a third of the size of our Milky Way galaxy. It's gorgeous. And so the psalmists who... Uh, wrote many, uh, you know, hundreds, thousands of years ago, the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the work of his hand. They, they would look up and see, for example, this star cluster, Pleiades star cluster, is actually mentioned in the book of Amos and the book of Job. This is, you can see this in the southern hemisphere on a clear night and the ancients looked up and they saw the work of God in the stars. But not everyone does that. Richard Dawkins, for example, will look up and say that the universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if at bottom there is no design, there's no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but. He, as I mentioned, he's a nothing butterist, blind, pitiless indifference. So clearly you can look at the same stars in the sky, the same beauty of the, of the cosmos, ...and come up with a different answer as to whether it points to the existence of God. So let's look a little bit at beginnings of the universe. Our universe is very old. But how old? Well, from the time of Plato and Aristotle, it was thought to be eternal. No beginning, no end. And this was also the the idea of Hindu cosmology... ...the idea of universes coming into birth and out of birth... ...rebirthing, endless cycles of universe creation... But the ancient Hebrews had a different idea. They believed in a beginning, a Genesis, as they wrote in the book of Genesis, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. But the eternal model, the the beginningless steady state model of the universe held sway right from the time of Aristotle through to Einstein. And it was only in the 1920s to to, to 40s that the idea began to change. And this came about largely through this man on the right, George Lemaitre, who was a Belgian priest and physicist. He looked at Einstein's equations of general relativity and he said these equations don't equate with a steady-state universe. They predict a universe that's expanding. And by definition, if we have an expanding universe, that at some point in the past, that universe must have originated from what he called a primeval atom and what is now referred to by the cosmologists and physicists as a singularity a point of zero uh, volume, infinite density where the laws of physics break down and no longer apply. Edwin Hubble, the man on the left, was an astronomer and he was looking out at galaxies far away and he noticed that the galaxies further away, the light from those galaxies was red-shifted, meaning that they were moving away. So these two facts, together with the recording of what's called the cosmic microwave background radiation, really sealed the deal that our universe had a beginning and it had a beginning 13.8 plus or minus 2 billion years ago. Now you might have thought this, was, uh, this would have been applauded by uh, physicists everywhere but it was actually quite an inconvenient truth. Hawking said many people do not like the idea that time had a beginning because it probably smacks of divine intervention. And John Maddox, who was the uh, editor of Nature magazine at that stage, said the idea of a beginning is thoroughly unacceptable because it provides an ultimate origin to our world and gives creationists ample justification for their belief. Fred Hoyle actually gave the name Big Bang and he did it to ridicule the whole idea because he believed in a steady state or eternal universe. Nonetheless, the Big Bang model is the current existing best description and model we have of our universe, that it began 13.8 billion years ago. And this revived an ancient cosmological argument uh, by a guy called Ghazali from the 12th century, who said, whatever begins to exist has a cause, and since the universe, (coughs) universe began to exist, then therefore the universe has a cause. It certainly asks for an explanation. We can no longer get away with the sort of glib comments of people like Bertrand Russell who said, well, the universe just is, always was, always will be, and that's that, as if we don't need to explain it. We do need to explain why there is something, a universe, rather than nothing. Well, Stephen Hawking, uh, in 2010, wrote his next least-read bestseller called... The Grand Design, which is actually a bit of a misnomer because he doesn't believe in design at all. But in that book, he says the Big Bang was merely, or nothing but, back to the nothing butteries, the consequence of the law of gravity. Because there is a law such as gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. Spontaneous creation is the reason there is something rather than nothing, why the universe exists and why we exist. So If you look at that statement, um, you've got to ask what's happened between 1988 when he was asking about the fire in the equations and who breathed the fire into the equations and gives us a universe for us to live in. And now when he says basically the equations breathe fire into themselves, this is basically metaphysics, which is fine, except that in the first few chapters of this book he says metaphysics and philosophy is dead. So Hawking is creating what is referred to as a category error. He's confusing mechanism with agency. He's ascribing a creative power to a force, gravity, without actually acknowledging that forces, gravity, is not creative. It's descriptive. It doesn't create anything. He's confusing a mechanism with an agency. And John Lennox, um, Oxford mathematician, um, has pointed this out. Uh, in several articles, as have his own colleagues, like Stephen Pen- uh, like uh, Roger Penrose, Lee Smolin, and uh, other uh, uh, physiologists and uh, philosophers such as nagel who 's also no- a non believer and basically Lennox says nonsense remains nonsense even when spoken by world famous scientists. immense prestige and authority doesn 't compensate for faulty logic so Stephen Hawking is a great physicist, and I would certainly not be criticising his his physics, but he's delving into the realm of metaphysics with statements like that. Many years ago, Wittgenstein really summed it up well when he said, the great delusion of modernity is that the laws of nature explain the universe for us. The laws of nature don't explain them, they describe the universe. They actually explain nothing. So what can physics tell us about the moment of creation? I think this is probably the most honest answer from a uh, a physicist that I've read, which is from the Nobel laureate, uh, Leon Lederman, who wrote a book called The God Particle, about the chronicling the, the development and ideas of the Higgs boson. And he says, we actually don't know anything about the universe until it reaches the mature age of a billionth, of a trillionth of a second. And that's some very short time after the creation of the Big Bang. When you read or hear anything about the birth of the universe, someone is making it up. We're in the realm of philosophy. Only God knows what happened at the beginning. So this is uh, a diagram that you'll find which nicely goes through uh, uh, events from the Big Bang. Up the top is where we are now. Humans observe the cosmos down through billions of years, epochs, down to this tiny 10 to the minus 43 seconds, which is called the Planck era, and you see there's question marks. The question marks, I think, Max Planck would be proud of because Max Planck, one of the fathers of quantum physics, was a very devout Lutheran believer in God and he would have been very happy to acknowledge that his era belonged to God. So at the origin of our universe, science can't take us. uh, So we have to realm into metaphysics, philosophy. So what are the options we've got? Well, the option I believe in uh, is that there is a God who is the institutor of all the laws of physics, of gravity, of M-theory, whatever your universal theory is. Others, like Hawking and Ed Witten, very famous physicists, are still looking for the elusive theory of everything. But they've also been outspoken in recent years, admitting that they think that task is becoming even less likely the more they go looking for it. And finally, um, the concept of a multiverse, which we'll come to shortly. The idea that our universe is just part of a whole ensemble, potentially infinite number of universes which are giving birth to other universes, and we just happen to be in a universe where life is supported. You can see the obvious problem with the multiverse is that it still begs for an answer to why there's a multiverse, and we get back into a, an infinite regress of causation, a sort of uh, thing that throws your head in a mess. Whatever we accept at the origin of the universe has to be accepted by faith. Yes, science works on faith as well uh, because it, it's not going to be provable. We can't rewind the tape. So the universe had a beginning, it needs an explanation, some transcendent uncaused cause something that provides intelligence into the universe, as exemplified by the laws of physics, it has to be not bounded by space and time because they came into existence at the time of the Big Bang. For me, that's an ample description of God. Next, I want to discuss an area called fine-tuning. You may be familiar with this idea, the idea that we live in a universe that is exquisitely fine-tuned, to allow for the existence and development of life. A universe where the knobs, if they were twiddled slightly one way or the other, uh, would not support life or us. This is a table that's uh, not readable, and whenever people put these up, I hate it in meetings, but um, I couldn't fit. This is about half or a third of the actual constants and... and, uh, and forces that are fine-tuned. I couldn't fit the others on the slide. So just to take an example, the first column shows you what constants we're talking about, like the gravity ratio of electrons to protons, the strong and weak nuclear forces. The next two columns show what would happen if those forces were a little bigger or a little smaller. And without going into detail, a lot of the changes, which would be infinitesimal, would result in the inability for stars to form, for galaxies, for hydrogen to fuse to helium, for the production of heavy elements that make up you and I. Because ultimately, the carbon, the silicon, the iron, all the heavy elements that make up our Earth and make up us originated in the nucleus furnaces of stars and are spewed out at the time of supernova explosions. We are star stuff. So Joni Mitchell got it right in the 60s. There's a book called Just Six Numbers. It was written by Martin Rees, who's the Astronomer Royal. You probably didn't know that the Queen had an astronomer on site as well as a physician, as well as someone to look after her corgis. But she's got her own personal astronomer, and it's Martin Rees. And he wrote a book called Just Six Numbers. And here he talks about just six numbers and ratios, that if there were any slight change in any one of them, there would be no stars and no stars means no life. And Roger Penrose, down the bottom, who worked with Stephen Hawking on his work on black holes and singularities, made a calculation that the precision of all of the uh, elements that occurred at the time of the Big Bang had to be precise to less than one part in 10 to the power of 10 to the power of 123. That's a big number. Considering it's estimated that there are 10 to the power of 80 atoms in the entire universe, we're looking at a big, big number or a very, very small chance that this happened simply by chance. And the most fine tuned of all the constants, the granddaddy of fine tuning, is this constant called the cosmological constant, which describes the expansion of our universe. And this is fine-tuned to the order of 1 in 10 to the power of 120. So there's no one who believes that cosmic fine-tuning, no serious uh, scientist believes that it's due to pure luck. But it is mainstream science and we need to find an explanation. So you could say that it is purely the best cosmic good luck story you've ever heard, that we just got really, 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 really 10 to the power of 123 really lucky. But none of mainstream physicists or scientists would accept that. So it really comes down to a choice at the present time, and this is widely acknowledged, between invoking the idea of a multiverse or a multiple, potentially infinite number of other universes of which we just happen to be one that supports life, or you believe that the appearance of design in our universe is actually because there is design there and there is intention and we were meant to be here. The multiverse basically says that there's an infinite number of universes of which every possible combination of mass and energy and all the constants exist, but we happen to live in the one that supports carbon-based life. So it's pretty easy if you say that there's an infinite number to say well 10 to the power of 10 to the power of 123 doesn't sound so big if there's 10 to the power of 500 universes. The problem with this theory is that it's, it, it's totally unprovable. We, we, we don't even know about the single universe we currently live in, let alone postulating unknowable other universes. And St- um, uh, Paul Davies makes these points. He says there's obviously no possible ev- way we can find experimental support for that. There's no scientific evidence, so it's unfalsifiable. It's metaphysics, which it has to be. It's outside of the realm of physics. And it still begs the question, even if you accept that there is a multiverse, of where did the multiverse come from? And so we're back to that infinite regress again. And that, therefore, a multiverse and God are not mutually exclusive, because you could equally say, well, if God decided to just make one universe out of an infinite number that supports life, then, and we happen to live in it, God could still have done that but it does seem an imp- fairly implausible scheme to me um, and it's mainly uh, a way of having an alternative to the, the other option which is that there is a creator God who fine-tuned us. And this is uh, one of the cosmologists, Edward Harrison, who for his mind at least says here is the cosmological proof. I don't like the word proof but let's say cosmological evidence of the existence of God, a cosmological evidence. The fine-tuning of the universe provides prima facie evidence of deistic design. Take your choice, blind chance that requires a multitude of universes or design that requires only one. Many scientists admit that their views incline towards the design or teleological argument. And in fact, this was the argument that, one of the arguments that most convinced the atheist philosopher Um, Anthony Flew, who was a mentor of Richard Dawkins, uh, to change his mind at the age of 80 to say there is a God. The design argument was very persuasive for him, uh, much to the chagrin of Richard Dawkins, who then accused him for the remaining 18 months of his life of having Alzheimer's and completely losing his marbles. But he wrote a book basically called There Is a God. So... What I'd ask you to do tonight is, and later tonight is have a think and, and sort of see what you think of that whole idea of the fine-tuning argument. Do you think blind chance? Do you think multiverse? Or could it be that the, the fine-tuning appearance is not just an appearance but is intended? So where have we come so far? Well, many scientists, it seems, still believe in God. Perhaps 50%. We don't know what it is in Australia. It would be very interesting. I couldn't find any Australian data. My suspicion is it might be a little bit lower because I think as a country we're probably a bit more post-Christian than the United States um, and certainly uh, other Asian countries. There are limits to the explanatory power of science. We can't expect science to answer every aspect of our lives or every question in our lives. The battle is not between God and science, it's between the concept of reductionism, or the nothing butteries, and belief in the supernatural. We've discussed the idea of mechanism and agency, the fact that we simply because we have mechanisms that we can understand that science gives us so beautifully doesn't eliminate God from the equation as the agency. The universe had a beginning, it begs the question where... And from what did that beginning come? And it demands an explanation. And the universe is fine-tuned. Whatever take you have on that and the explanation, that's mainstream physics. Is it multiverse? Is it because God fine-tuned it? In the last few minutes before the break, what I'd like to do is say a few words about mathematics. I'm really sad that our pastor Paul Dale is not here because... He is an uber-mathematician and he would have loved to be here, but he's got the flu. Several studies of scientists' belief in God have consistently shown that mathematicians believe in God at a rate about two and a half times those of other physical scientists, the physicists and biologists. So it seems that mathematicians are quite spiritual. They either believe in God or they believe in a platonic realm of numbers, some heavenly realm where numbers exist which was the idea of Plato. He called it the realm of perfect form where geometry and spheres and cones and conic sections lived in happy harmony away from the bustle of the earth. The universe is a very mathematical place. The most complex laws and it can be concisely expressed in a series of numbers and symbols and letters that we call mathematics. And it really is the only portal of entry into some of the most complex and deepest truths of the physical world. Galileo realised this when he said the great book of nature can be read only by those who know the language in which it was written and this is the language of mathematics. Isaac Newton also realised the power of mathematics when he wrote his magnificent treatise the Principia Mathematica, which is still widely regarded as the greatest individual treatise of science that's ever been produced. He dedicated that tome to convince the thinking man to believe in God. He believed that the power and the beauty of the maths that was presented in there, his laws of motion, gravity uh, and force could convince the sceptic or the unbeliever that there was a God behind it. Eugene Wigner, who is not a believer, a Nobel physicist, wrote a beautiful essay. It's called The Unreasonable Effectiveness of Mathematics. And if you are at all interested in this area, I I would recommend that you get that out and read it. But he says, The enormous usefulness of mathematics is something bordering on the mysterious. There is no rational explanation for it. The miracle of the appropriateness of mathematics for the formulation of the laws of physics is a wonderful gift which we neither understand nor deserve. So Wigner realises that somehow uh, this awesome gift of maths has come to us, but he stops short of acknowledging that there could be a gift giver, recognising the gift as a gift of God. Quantum physicist Paul Girac said God is a mathematician of the highest order and he used beautiful mathematics in creating the world. In fact, Girard was so convinced on the beauty of mathematics that he and a number of his colleagues would always accept mathematical beauty ahead of experimental results. And he'd say to his colleagues, I don't care what the experiments say. If the maths is ugly, it's not true. And that's proven to be an effective uh, rule of thumb in physics. And you ask people like Ed Witten and Tegmart, Max Tegmart and other mathematicians and... They say if the maths ain't pretty, then the physics ain't real. This is the most beautiful equation. Isn't it? I didn't say that. It's, it's been voted the most beautiful equation year after year by mathematicians, needless to say. Um, and it's called Euler's identity. And Euler, uh, Leonard Euler, was a, a Swiss mathematician in the 18th century. And he actually used mathematics. He thought mathematics was his most important and powerful apologetic tool to spread the news that God was real. And he would uh, entertain uh, physicists and mathematicians or uh, natural philosophers, they were called in those days, uh, to convince them that God was real purely by looking at the beauty uh, of mathematics because he saw within mathematics a truth that pointed to a transcendent intelligence. On the back of this envelope here, which I've shown on the screen here, I've written some of, probably most of the most important equations in the world that can describe our natural world. They can all be put on an envelope, not by my writing, it's my sister's. I've got crappy handwriting and I could fit about E equals MC squared on the back of that. But up the top, the scariest equation is the one that uh, describes... uh, how all the particles move. That's called the standard model equation. And with that, we can explain quarks, atoms, molecules, badgers, beavers, humans, galaxies and stars, how they move, the mechanisms involved. It's just exquisite that mathematics gives us that ability to so concisely summarise and describe the universe. But does that explain the universe? It doesn't explain anything. To use Wigner's phrase, the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics is something we neither deserve or can explain. But I agree with Wigner, it's a gift, but I think it's a gift that comes to us. Not from a universe of blind, pitiless indifference. Does mathematical beauty point to you of Dawkins' universe of blind, pitiless indifference that neither knows we're here or cares? I think it points very squarely to a universe that cares because it's been put into place by a creator who cares. So why would a universe of blind, purposeless maths obey elegant laws? Or to ask Stephen Hawking his own question from 1988, who or what breathes the fire into the equations that makes a universe for them to describe? I think it's it's God who breathes the fire into the equation. I believe this is a very strong pointer to an uninvolved, transcendent intellect, a God behind the universe. So we're going to take a little break now uh, for about 15 minutes and then we're going to discuss an area which I think is probably the big elephant in the room, uh, the whole idea of evolution and whether we can rationalise or accept or put together the idea of the theory of evolution with belief in God. What I'd like to spend the next uh, section of tonight on before we go into the question time is an area which I think is sort of emblematic of the perceived clash of uh, belief in God with belief in science, and that's the area of evolution. Um, It's an area which I think we, from both sides, both polar ends of the, the spectrum, uh, it tends to be a, a discussion which is sometimes not very humble, uh, not very polite, uh, and from both sides. I think sometimes uh, from the ultra-Darwinian side, uh, it, can, it can move into uh, positions of uh, ridicule and mocking of believers. And from the other side, it can be the opposite polarity of saying, I believe in God, I cannot accept evolution. Yet behind me, and I don't think it has to be that way, and that's what I'd like to present in the next few minutes. So, I want to ask the question Has God used the process of evolution to bring about the emergence of God conscious, self conscious beings like you and I, or do we actually have to deny evolution to maintain faith in a creator God? And from the outset, I believe, as do thousands of scientists, that Darwin's the theory of evolution provides the best current explanation of how our biology works, the development of life from simple unicellular organisms through to multicellular organisms through to animals, through to homo sapiens, us, wise humans, homo sapiens. So what do we mean by evolution? What is evolution? Well, evolution is a process by which species of organisms arise from earlier life forms, undergo change over time through a process called natural selection acting on genetic variation or mutation amongst individuals. And there are various catch cries that are used, such as descent with modification or survival of the fittest. Um, And the concept is that there are a common ancestor for all living things. The mechanism of evolutionary change is a process called natural selection. Now it turns out that Charles Darwin doesn't seem to have been the first evolutionist. The earliest records I can find of anyone talking about this concept was actually the father of uh, one of the early church fathers, St. Augustine, who in the fifth century spoke of in, and said, In the beginning were created only germs or causes of the forms of life which were afterwards to be developed in gradual course. Sounds a bit like evolution, doesn't it? And he wrote this in a book called The Literal Meaning of Genesis where Augustine actually warns believers not to to adopt a position where they interpret Genesis literally lest they draw the attention and ridicule of non-believers. Doesn't that sound like wise, sage advice from a man who realised in the 5th century that the Bible wasn't written as a science textbook? or was not intended to be read in that way. Actually, Charles Darwin's grandfather, Erasmus, was also an early evolutionist, but he didn't get around to doing the the hard research. He just had the ideas and spoke of it. It was really Charles Darwin and uh, Alfred Russell Wallace in the early 1800s who came up with the idea of how evolution might work, and they were given joint credit by having their their ideas presented at the Linnaean Society together on the same night. But it was Charles Darwin who then went on to produce 25, 30 years later his book on the origin of species. So what's the evidence for evolution? And I'm not going to... This could go for three hours. I'm just going to put in point form some of the evidences, the most compelling general evidences for evolution. The fossil record does show evidence of a transition from simple to complex organisms. It does show transitional forms between reptiles and birds, reptiles and mammals. I won't go into all the detail. Everyone says the fossil record's incomplete. Yes, it is, because organisms don't always die leaving fossils. It has to be a pretty special set of circumstances for us to see fossils preserved now. But suffice it to say there is ample evidence in the fossil record. Anatomical similarities or homology across species points to common ancestry, embryology, the study of development of organisms and life forms. Vestigial organs, you know, organs that we have or parts of our body we have now that don't seem to have any particular purpose now, like our tailbones except to fall on them and, and fracture them. Um, the appendix, there are other ones. Molecular biology is probably the strongest individual breakthrough that's come in the study of DNA to point to our shared ancestry. And then the study of movement of and distri- distribution of plants and animals from their point of origin. There's a whole science there that points towards evolution. And then there's direct observation. We can see evidence of micro evolution in our daily work in the hospital. We're always developed resistant organisms are developing, bacteria, viruses, and that can be over quite a short period of time, over a period of weeks or years, uh, organisms can evolve resistance to the antibiotics that we want to treat them with. Evidence for evolution. Well, the theory of evolution, says Francis Collins, who was the head of the genome project, the, the public arm of the genome project, said the theory of evolution is as well supported as the theory of gravity. And Theodosius Dobonsky, who who was one of the most well-respected evolutionary biologists of the 20th century, a man to whom Richard Dawkins looks up, said, nothing in biology makes sense except in the light of evolution. Both of these men are committed evolutionary scientists and both are Christians. So it's clearly compatible, it's clearly capable of scientists to hold a viewpoint that accepts the Darwinian description of evolution of life. What about Charles Darwin himself? Well, he seemed to go through quite an evolution himself in terms of his ideas on God. Um, In the first edition of uh, On the Origin of Species, he talks about uh, the um, breathing in of a spirit uh, into the creation, uh, the laws imprinted on matter by a creator, powers having been originally breathed by the creator, So he didn't see his theory as being at loggerheads with with Christian belief. But his own faith in God was shaken again by personal circumstance, not by science, by the death of his young daughter Annie which really shook his faith and didn't question his belief in the existence of God but did shake his understanding of God's benevolence. And I think that's something that we need to keep in mind that it's not just science that determines the way we think about the world and God. There are, there are important personal issues, day-to-day um, issues of, of, of suffering and other issues that we need to address. So he said here, it seems to me absurd to doubt that a man may be an ardent theist and an evolutionist. I've never been an atheist and he consistently was not an atheist and this this was in a letter he wrote three years before his death so darwin didn't go to the grave as an atheist and he said i can hardly see how religion and science can be kept distinct there's no reason that the disciplines should attack each other with bitterness and i think currently there is a bit too much bitterness and vitriol in the whole discussion it doesn't need to be there It would be too simple to say, well, it's all quite lovey-dovey and we can just merge the two and that's fine. There have been some clear clashes and there are some clear inconsistencies and these are the three battlefronts, I guess, if you like to call them that, that I can identify. One is the viewpoint of young earth creationism, which basically says that we must interpret the first three chapters of Genesis literally that God created the earth and the heavens in six days and that the Earth was is only four thousand uh, came came into being about four thousand BC. This is the idea of young Earth creationism. The second is the idea of intelligent design movement, which you may have heard of, that that was spurned uh, or spawned at least in the early 1990s by uh, a lawyer uh, and a microbiologist who wrote books um, claiming that. Evolution couldn't explain certain uh, ir- so-called irreducibly complex structures uh, because uh, they were too complex to be explained by a series of small steps. And finally, the third clash is is the view, the, what I call the ultra-Darwinian view of Richard Dawkins and Peter Atkins and Daniel Dennett where they say evolution demands atheism and they'll have, have no embrace... Of, uh, of religion anywhere in between. A simple comment on the first young earth creationism, I guess it's clear from what I've said earlier that, that I, I as a scientist can't subscribe to that and I think I can do nothing else than echo the words of uh, Dubansky when he says creation is not an event that happened in 4004 BC, it's a process that began some 10 million years ago and is still underway. Does evolution clash with religious faith? It does not. It's a blunder to mistake the Holy Scriptures for elementary textbooks of astronomy, geology, biology and anthropology. Only if symbols are construed to mean what they're not intended to mean can there be any imaginary insoluble conflicts. Um, Galileo said it also quite pithily uh, in the uh, the, 16th century when he said, The Holy Scriptures were written to teach man how to go to heaven, not how the heavens go. What about intelligent design? Well, this is a a theory that basically says science can't explain it, so God did it. It's it's what I would refer to as a sort of God of the gaps theory. It's sort of inserting God into the holes of our current scientific explanation. The problem with this is that if we believe God exists, he's not God of the gaps, he's God of the whole show. He's God of what we do know and what we don't know. And the gaps of what science can't explain will gradually be filled, as they already have in the 20 years or so since the intelligent design movement came to fore. There have already been publications explaining uh, how the Krebs cycle, the flagellum and the eye could have developed in a series of small steps So their gaps are shrinking. And ultimately, intelligent design movement doesn't actually provide any mechanism. It's not really a theory because it makes no predictions and has no actual predictive mechanism. I think the message that evolution was always at loggerheads with belief in God is not correct. Um, One of the earliest persons that Darwin shared his thoughts on with this was a botanist called Asa Gray at Harvard and Asa Gray was a devout christian and he accepted darwin's theory with open arms but it was explained to him what he'd been struggling to understand from his plant biology for years and charles kingsley who was a prominent anglican minister had no problem reconciling evolution belief in god when he says He felt that it was just as noble a conception of the deity to believe that he created a few original forms capable of self-development into other and needful forms as to believe that he required a fresh act of creation to supply the voids caused by the actions of his laws. He basically said God makes things to make themselves. He gave the universe the creative freedom to explore its potentialities and to create. I'd suggest there are at least four reasons why belief in evolution doesn't eliminate belief in God and doesn't eliminate God and why I can comfortably believe in God and the theory of evolution. As we discussed earlier, our whole universe, life um, and, uh, and the earth we live on depend on the fine-tuning of physical constants which themselves point towards a designer Secondly, a mechanism, namely natural selection and evolution, doesn't eliminate an agency. We get back to the same principle again. Simply because we can use a descriptor, natural selection acting on on genetic uh, variation doesn't mean that we've eliminated an agency any more than describing how a combustion engine works wipes out Frank Whittle, who discovered it. Thirdly... There is actually increasing evidence from evolutionary theory that points to there being an arrow, a clear direction towards complexity, potentiality and purpose, as opposed to the long-held concept that that there is at basis basis no purpose and no design or potentiality uh, or direction in evolution. And this comes from the work of, uh, amongst others, uh, a biologist called Simon Conway Morris, who's done a lot of work on the Burgess Shale fossils in Canada, which is this massive um, display of uh, life from uh, a period called the Cambrian Explosion, where a lot of multicellular life came into uh, existence over a very short epoch of time. And finally, evolution is dependent on the existence of coded information, and this is in the form of, of DNA. For me, uh, the 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 uh, my understanding of how evolution and science and belief in God come together is in what's called theistic evolution. It's not a very sexy title. Um, uh, Francis Collins, the head of the Genome Project, and a number of scientists have developed a website called BioLogos, and I'd really recommend if you're interested in this area to go on to that site and it's got uh, you'll spend hours there going from one link to another it looks at all of the questions that you're wanting to answer were were, were adam and eve real men and uh, women uh, was there a fall did suffering occur before the fall how do we reconcile there's a whole lot of questions that, that are answered uh, or given answers for on that site but basically theistic evolution accepts that God endowed the world with the ability to create itself via the mechanism of evolution and that natural selection is part of God's means of creating. It gives creatures potentiality and freedom to make themselves, but you've got to see the flip side of it. With that potentiality comes the ability for there to be blind alleys, extinctions, and for things to not be perfect. We don't live in a perfect world. But I don't believe the Bible ever promised the world was perfect. God said it was good, very good, not perfect. So that's, in a nutshell, how I understand evolution being in relationship with my, my belief in God. John Polkinghorne says it this way, creation is a continuous progressive unfolding of the world, an improvisation and not the performance of an impeccably written score leaves room for exploration and potentiality. Final few words of science. Um, The origin of life. This is a really thorny and difficult issue. This is an area of science where there's been very little progress made uh, over many decades. This is the question of how did life come from non-life? Organic from inorganic. And it's an area that really is still... uh, difficult and there's no clear answer we can't replay the tape of history there were no eyewitnesses to tell us and evolution certainly can't be the answer because as you know evolution requires a mutating replicator in the form of DNA to get going so you can't evolve without DNA so there has to be an answer as to how the first DNA molecule first RNA molecule first proteins came into being various theories, some people have proposed that RNA was the first molecule and that we had an RNA world that then emerged into a DNA world. The real tricky question is RNA is still a very complex molecule. The question is how do we get the coded information and intelligence that is represented in the three and a half billion base pair language of DNA in the first place. The difficulty is not just the medium, how it became, but it's the message. How did the message get there? And how can mindless processes, mindless co-location of atoms, set up codes and languages? Paul Davies, who is agnostic, asks that question. And at the present time, there really is no answer to that. There's a lot of catchphrases like, life emerged from non-life, life emerged from the laws of physics but without any real mechanisms. And this was a problem that again convinced Anthony Flew, who I referred to earlier, who was a lifelong atheist, to switch his position and write the book There Is a God, because, as he says, biologists' investigation of DNA has shown by the almost unbelievable complexity of arrangements which are needed to produce life that intelligence must have been involved. I believe from the very origin of our universe, intelligence, was there. It was infused into the fabric of the cosmos by God. And like Francis Collins states in his book, that DNA is literally one of the languages of God, along with mathematics. So the question is, either life, human intelligence, rationality originate from mindless, unguided matter, the nothing butteries, or from an infinite intelligence or a creator God. And that's the question I would ask you to have a think about tonight. The Bible, and the Apostle John says in the Bible, in the beginning was the Word. Word is logos, information, intelligence. And the Word was God. So where have we come tonight? This is what I would call the admissible evidence. The lawyers amongst you I think would be happy to accept that what I've presented so far, the evidence is admissible in a court of scientific law. The Big Bang Theory, the universe had a beginning, the cosmic fine-tuning, multiverse or God, mathematical beauty as a pointer to truth and to intelligence and transcendence, biology, evolution and the origins of life, coded information in DNA. DNA. Question My colleagues at work sometimes ask me when they haven't got anything better to do. You go to church, you know, why do you believe in God? If I want to answer them I, from science, this is what I would say I believe in God because I believe God is the best explanation for me of why there is something rather than nothing. I, I don't accept the cosmic bootstrap, law of gravity did it idea. I don't believe a law, which itself remains unexplained, can create. I believe in God because the universe had a beginning and it has a continuing existence that I think he initiated and sustains. I believe in God because of the fine-tuned laws that govern the universe. And I believe in God because of the existence of information and intelligence written into the DNA which allows for the evolution of life. I believe in the mathematical elegance that Eugene Wigner spoke of, but I believe that is a gift, and it's a gift from God. And I believe in God because I believe that our thoughts do have the capacity to produce true beliefs. I don't believe in the reductionist idea which leads you to the absurd conclusion that we shouldn't believe our thoughts because they're only there as a result of the co-location of mindless atoms. So if we left it all there... At best, I would say, what I would best hope that I've done tonight is point you to a a God that Blaise Pascal called the God of the Philosophers, the sort of distant God who was there at the beginning, um, got everything going, sustains the universe, but is still on vacation just watching and is not interacting with us and we don't have a relationship with. That's the God, God of the philosophers, the sort of watchmaker God. And even Richard Dawkins, following an, a uh, debate with John Lennox in 2008, said, from all of that, what I've spoken about tonight, a serious case can be made for a deistic God, a deistic God, the God, the distant God, the watchmaker God. I explored this whole area when I was 17 through to about 19 or 20, and I got to the God of the philosophers fairly quickly. But I wasn't satisfied. I was still left wondering, who is he? And why did he bother to create the universe just so I could think about him and realise he's there without actually interacting with him? So I'd done the deconstruction of Aunt Matilda's cake beautifully, but I still didn't know who Aunt Matilda was. What I want to venture onto now in the last few minutes is some inadmissible evidence. This stuff's not legal in a a court of law but I think it's important because it perhaps tells you a little bit more about why I'm standing up here um, tonight. I believe that there is a relational, interactive God who has actually revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ, a God who does care about us, but I think we have to go to other areas of understanding beyond science to meet him. We have to go to areas of philosophy, uh, look at the question of the moral code, why we have this intrinsic sense of right and wrong, and also the historical evidence that Christianity gives us. And in fact, Christianity, as John Dixon says, puts its head on the chopping block and waits for you to swing the axe. It's out there in the life and teachings of Jesus Christ. I also think, that in all of us, at some stage in their life, there is a yearning for the transcendent. The writer of the Ecclesiastes said he has set eternity in the human heart. He says God has actually put within humanity the urge to ask questions beyond this existence. Now, we may not do that in the busyness and hustle-bustle of our daily lives. Uh, We may not do it because life is pretty easy most of the time for us. But there may come a time where things get shaken and our trust in the things that this world can give us uh, make us realise how spiritually, physically and emotionally fragile we actually really are as human beings. And it's at that time that we might actually, uh, pray that we do, cast our eyes heavenward and actually think, is there something beyond this existence? I showed you before the most beautiful equation. Does anyone remember it? Equals zero, correct. But I'm going to tell you now that that's not the most beautiful equation in my life. The most beautiful equation that I saw was a very simple one. Uh, It was painted on a church near Waterloo where Ali and I were staying before we moved uh, to Lavender Bay. And uh, this is the equation. I think this is the most beautiful equation. So what it says in symbolic form is that Jesus' death on a Roman cross equals God's way of showing his love to the world. The Apostle John said it not as succinctly but beautifully when he said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Now, that may seem a very simple equation and seem counterintuitive to many of you in the room I don't know perhaps it's too simple but the mystery of this equation is that it can be understood by a nine-year-old girl in Kenya a plumber in Melbourne or a science professor in Harvard and when you get it when the power of it actually sinks in it has the power to change your life and transform it so my hope and my prayer tonight as we've explored science is that you might ask perhaps for the first time Uh, Or again, having asked it as a child, uh, could it be true that there's more to life than this transient existence we live in? Is there a God there waiting to be met, to approach and to enjoy? Now, I realise for some of you here tonight that science is not the real barrier. You know, you can understand and accept the scientific side of things. And there are more personal barriers for you than, than science. If that's your situation, then I'd really encourage you to come back and sit with us any time on a Sunday and, and explore a bit more the heart of the message of this church, the Christian message, um, and see if in Jesus you might actually find some of the answers to the questions that uh, you're asking. So I'm going to stop there and open things up. For for discussion and questions thank you very much
0: david let's give him a warm round of applause i'm just going to give david just a very brief moment to gather his thoughts before he fields some of our questions and i'd just like to uh, suggest just a few things three things uh, for both ideas about how you might like to continue exploring this topic So here's three thoughts about how you might explore this topic. Uh, One of the books that David has highly recommended, we have on our bookstall tonight, which will be out the back of church as you leave tonight, is a book by Dr. John Lennox, God's Undertaker Has Science Buried God? So you can grab that or another book, which will be uh, on the bookstall as you go. David also mentioned that website, BioLogos, and if you would like to find more about that, it's at the top of the back of your page that you will have received on your way in or you can write it down there, it's just biologos.org. Uh, perhaps, though, you would like to just go straight to the source and start exploring more about the historical life of the man Jesus Christ, the man who has transformed David's life and many of the people that you're sitting around tonight. If you would like to do that, we want to offer you as a free gift a historical account of Jesus' life, uh, and you'll find those on the bookshelf, on the book uh, stall, as you go out. Uh, this is uh, an eyewitness account of the life of Jesus Christ, uh, and in this uh, you will find uh, all about that life-giving word um, who the Bible claims is the Son of God and gives meaning to our lives. Perhaps uh, you would like to meet with people and think more about these topics. Um, yeah, as David mentioned, maybe it's not just science that that's... Um, scratching on your heart uh, maybe you want to come and join us here at church and you are, would be most welcome we would love to have you come back we have 5 services that meet every sunday we have an 8am service a 9:45 service a 3:30 service a 5:30 service and a 7pm service uh, you'd be most welcome to look up our website come to any of those uh, the service times are up the top there um, but maybe a church service would be one step too far so if you want to just explore the christian faith and think a little bit about that and we're offering two courses over the next little while for people who are interested in exploring Jesus and the Christian faith. The first one is one that will be available on Tuesday mornings uh, for those whom that would suit. It's a Simply Christianity course. It goes for five weeks and explores the historical account of Jesus' life from uh, the perspective of a writer, Luke. Uh, Alison Wally, David's wife. Uh, so you get both sides of the, of the uh, party there. Uh, and myself will be uh, leading, co-leading that. Uh, or you might like to join us on an alpha course. Uh, Alpha is for anyone exploring the big questions of life, and that's going to start um, for six weeks, starting on the 9th of October. So um, you can take this and jot those down. You can look up our website and find out more information on any of those. Uh, But now we're going to open to a few questions. Uh, So I'm going to actually walk around with a microphone just there's a number of us here so if you might be willing to speak into the microphone as you ask your questions if you have them uh, and just hold it up to your mouth is the the most helpful way so i will uh wander around with these if anyone has a question For me, I can see the, uh, the the divine elegance, if you will, about mathematics and physics and uh, those sort of more numerical fields. But when I see um, evolution, with the kind of the underpinning process of it being survival of the fittest, which is all about competition and dominance, mm. how how do we reconcile that with a good God?
1: Yeah, but uh, it's it's not. Um, an easy sort of thing to, to flesh out in half an hour, but um, you have to accept, if you accept evolution and the processes of evolution, you have to accept that there has been, since organism, multicellular organisms and, and animals have been around, there's been death and competition in a world that can't support an endless supply of, of, of uh, you know, creatures. And that's, that's part of the circle of life. Um, and yes, we have to accept that, that if we accept the evolutionary process um, as giving the potentiality for, for organisms to, to evolve, develop, explore potentialities that will end in extinctions, it will end with some animals not surviving. There are many more creatures who are extinct than, have ever, than we have living with us today, as you know. So why did God do it that way? I don't know. Is it cruel? I don't know. I mean, do those primitive life forms feel pain and suffering, and therefore is it cruel? I don't know. But you know, it's it's um, the alternative to that is seeing a god who pops fully formed creatures, you know, on a, on an earth uh, with no capacity for death, and the creatures breed. And do you have you know, you don't have any evolution. You don't. You, you run out of resources. You know. I don't. The answer is I don't know. But but you have to accept yes that, that ev- evolution doesn't look pretty. Objectively from the outside, all the time we can look at look at various components of it that that present well, um, but there are other areas where there is there is um, uh, it's red in tooth and claw, as I think Tennyson. The poet described it. Thank you. Um, is yep. so but I still don't think that means, that because we can't understand it, we have to go back to saying, well, it can't have happened that way. It's, it, it has to be a literal genesis interpretation. I think we just have to say it's an elephant in the room, but we've got to address it.
0: Yeah, um, yeah something a little more specific. Is this
1: yeah, something a little more specific. I
0: wanted to ask about the Fermi paradox, if you're able to speak about that briefly.
1: Yeah. Um, well, why don't you uh, elucidate the Fermi paradox?
0: Yeah. Uh, God. I'm not a scientist by any means, but my understanding is that it's this theory that says when you apply even the most um, like conservative layers of probability, you still arrive at the conclusion that there must be other intelligent life out there, I believe. And how do you think as Christians we can meaningfully yeah. engage in discussions like that?
1: Yeah, so the Fermi Paradox basically says that if... Well, it broken down, it actually says that we've been here so long that if they were out there, we should have seen them by now. Yeah. This is sort of... There's a guy called Drake who came up with an equation which was based on lots of loose and unsupportable variables predicting the likelihood of finding extraterrestrial life. Yeah. Um, and... And in, interestingly, the, I spoke with Paul Davies, who's on one of the subcommittees. For, he's on, on, I think, the committee that's set the task of greeting the aliens if we do ever meet them. And he wrote a book called The Eerie Silence. And basically, you don't need to read the book because in the last two paragraphs, he says, basically, I think the chance of there being any other intelligent life form out there in the universe is, is virtually Buckley's. It's, it's a good book to read, but I wish I'd read the last page before I read it. <laughs> yeah,
0: thank you. Hi, David. Thanks for your, your presentation. It was really great. Um, I think what's interesting is like the, what you've put forward from a scientific perspective is interesting Like that it's inconclusive from a scientific point of view to say that there isn't a God, and a lot of scientists have said that. But from your perspective... Um, and I know that while I'm sort of going through that journey and trying to make sense of a lot of things, especially in the Old Testament and things through Genesis, what sort of things did you find comforting to actually let go of some of those questions that you actually had, like things like the flood and evolution and, and, and those sorts of things?
1: I, I'm i not a theologian, but I've listened to quite a few talks on that whole issue of literal genesis and i've read some good books and i'd recommend an author called john walton who's written some really good stuff on interpretation of genesis and non-literal interpretation of genesis Um, and i find his stuff good and i think biologos is you'll if you go on there uh, as long as you've got a lazy 12 hours because you'll go to one li- link and it'll take you to another link, and you know, but it's a great resource. I think you, if you go on there, it'll help you a lot with those sort of questions, which are sort of theological ones. Um, if the first Adam wasn't literal, then why should we believe that the second Adam was literal? Um, Adam? Did you say, or Adam? Adam, Adam, as in Adam, A-D-A-M. Yes. So, why, if the first Adam wasn't literal, why should we believe the second Adam, meaning Jesus? Yes, that's right. Was whether he was a real, a historical? Yep. Uh, well, the second part of the question is because history is replete with evidence that Jesus Christ existed and and walked on the earth, and it comes from uh, non-religious sources like Tacitus and uh, uh, Josephus and other writers of that era who attested to his existence and teachings and various elements that you can um, describe of his life, that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate and those historical things. So I think the second Adam answer I'm, I'm happy with. I don't think there's only one historian I think who... Who was widely quoted? Who uh, rejects that? And he's a, a professor of German uh, literature, <laughs> not a historian. Um, the first Adam. Whether we have to. In, it's. It's. Uh, again, it's a difficult question. You, you couldn't say that there was, in fact, a first that that the, the Adam referred to, and Adam and Eve were real people, but they were clearly people living, you know, in Iron Age Mesopotamia uh, and. Whether they were the first people, I don't think we have to believe that because we have Cain going off to an adjacent village with his wife um, and they were already making things out of iron and bronze. So we, the, the Bible itself, as you read it, points out that there were other people living at the time that the Genesis described Adam and Eve were there. Biologos.
0: Thank you, Tim. I I would say it is an important question for those who are Bible believers amongst us to really consider that um, about the validity of a historical Adam and the implications that has for our beliefs about Jesus uh, being a second Adam who who if if we are all brought in under the power of of sin because of Adam's decision, uh, then Christ is the one who through his historical action as well redeems us out of that and... um, his historical actions bring about our hope of, of forgiveness by God and resurrected life, which is the great Christian hope. So it is a very important topic, and thank you. There's room for discussion and, and movement on that as well. Any last questions? How do you come to idea of saying that the universe and the world was... 6 billion years or 60 billion years and 6,000 years. How do you determine the age of the universe?
1: Uh, well, thank goodness I wasn't left with that task. <laughs> but it's done for a series of different um, ways. One is uh, through that man I showed, Edwin Hubble, uh, the guy who was peering through the telescope and noticed the red shifting of, of galaxies. Through his observations, there's a law called Hubble's Law which explains the expansion rate of the universe and calculations which are far beyond my mathematical ability have been done using details of the expansion rate, the movement of galaxies apart. There was also a satellite called the WMAP, the Wilkinson Microwave Anisotropy Project, um, satellite that got sent up and it measured uh, the cosmic background radiation uh, of the universe and through calculations based on that satellite they came up with this figure 13.8 plus or minus 0.2 billion years.
0: We advertised the 9.15 finish time uh, so mm. uh, we'd love you to go out, look up at the stars tonight if mm. you can see them. <laughs> go, go
1: on the Hubble site. If you've never been on the Hubble site just put it on on a big screen, turn the lights off and watch it.
0: We would also love you to come back and join us again. We hope this isn't the last time that you come to Church by the Bridge. If you'd like to speak with David more, I'm sure he'd be happy to chat. Uh, He's here every Sunday at 7 p.m. as well if you want to come and join him uh, there as we think more about the the great God that we've um, been wondering about tonight. Thank you very much for coming. And uh, we hope that if you want to have a look at the bookstall or find out more information about our church, you can do so on your way out tonight. Thank you.
1: Thanks, Ed.